0: Next up in this sort of accidental psychobiology of stress series, Dr. Cashew takes you through more intricacies of resilience, this time diving into the seven habits of highly resilient people. Roll the intro! Hello! Hello! And welcome to... Coffee with Cashy. <laughs> I am your host, Doctor Trevor Cashy. Mm. Part two, do Duh. Today's lesson continues on what appears to be an accidental series on the psychobiology of stress. Cool, cool. This this lesson is the second part of a two-parter and discusses the concept of resilience, or how likely you are to get stressed out, and when you get stressed out, how fast, quickly you recover from it and overcome and adapt. Okay, but what happens if you get stressed out, and you get stressed out from that stress, and it compounds into what feels like a death spiral? You get stuck. Have you ever felt that way? Ever felt stuck? Well, you're in luck. Although that—that's an interesting combination to be lucky for feeling stuck. But as Allison so adequately put in the previous lesson, it sounds more like a full-blown panic attack. (laughs) Indeed, there are seven big things to consider. In this lesson, time permitting, uh, we're revisiting. The first four and learning about the last three so thinking caps on this one is pretty beefy this one's pretty beefy okay so going back to the concept of resilience you can think of human resilience in a few different ways the general consensus within the academic community is that resilience is the ability to recover from and adapt to distress distress okay this bad pathological stress versus eustress which is adaptive stress so the distress is that type of stress that leads to people becoming miserable and sick and if food is available fat (laughs) Uh, scientists have studied resilience for years all right and it's mostly been on children and in families that endure disasters either human-made disasters such as war or terrorism and natural disasters uh, such as earthquakes floods fires etc the sort of what happens to them and the rate and how they recover and the characteristics in which impart them with, with resistance to and plasticity to the ability to flex and then come back from that strain, okay? And I'll be darned, guess what the major protective factors were, the indicators of resilience? Who exhibited the most resilience? Well, here they are, the people with, that were flexible with their BS, they're flexible, belief systems, they were decisive in their judgment. They acted, they acted on purpose and with purpose. In this case, this is acting on purpose, okay? They were persistent in their execution. So once they were decisive in their judgment, they acted and kept acting. They had a sense of community to support, share and bear and also helping with revising the flexibility and updating their flexible belief systems to help them be more decisive in the judgments they make because of the extra information they had and how rational they were able to make decisions based on that information they accrued from the other members of their community, as well as feelings of love and care, which we went over the last lesson a little bit, but we will revisit today. You'll learn about that again today. And they were respect-filled. They were respectful of themselves and others, exhibiting self-respect and other respect. And they were tolerant. are tolerant of frustrating stimuli. High, high levels of frustration tolerance, okay? And lastly, they were purpose-filled. They're solution-centered rather than self-centered, okay? This is a little bit of a touchy one. You're gonna get into it anyway. It's a good time. So again, thinking caps on. In other words, the, the the seven habits of highly resilient people can boil down to being rational and constructive in the face of frustrating stimuli. Okay, so a quick review of the first four traits, maybe 30 seconds or so on each, the first one being flexible beliefs and belief systems. Okay, they were flexible in their BS. Uh, Being flexible in the cognitive sense, the way a person thinks rather than, you know, toe touching, at least when facing new challenges, (laughs) is a critical component of constructive outcomes. Oh, Okay, this cognitive flexibility allows a person to do two big things. See the same problem from a different perspective, helps them be creative, okay, and readily changes their approach when presented with new information. They're reasonable. So part of being flexible, okay, having, being flexible in your BS that you have is being both creative and reasonable, right? And now going over being decisive. This is acting on a purpose, Okay? Once you once you form your belief or belief systems around a frustrating stimulus, it's acting to resolve, avoid, or shrink that frustrating stimulus. Okay, it's it is their ability to respond effectively in a timely manner in accordance with that belief system. After all, thinking rationally, although of critical importance, is all but wasted unless a person does something with it. Okay, next is persistence. Sometimes really adapting and overcoming frustrating stimuli those Ss okay require a bit more than rational thinking and even decisive responding in a timely manner this is where persistence comes in to essentially respond rationally and decisively to the same stimulus over and over to persist in your decisive responses. Okay. Edison's 6,000 failed light bulb experiments serve a good example. Did Edison do the same thing 6,000 times to make his best light bulb? On the contrary, Edison was rationally constructive by using the scientific method. It was closer to doing 6,000 different things one time, and that's the difference between being impulsively stubborn, bashing your head against the wall, driving yourself crazy, and rationally persistent using data to inform your decisions, to create outcomes that inform your future decisions, right? Next is community, the community aspect, or as academics may call it, interpersonal connectedness. Now, people involved in those communities, people who are in and involved in communities are more resistant to stress and recover faster from being stressed. Now, here is a kicker, is that perception in a lot of these cases is reality. People who feel loved rather than are loved, big difference, Okay, tend to lead happier lives for longer because the biochemistry of love, biochemistry of love transitions a person from distress over to you stress adaptive, essentially, okay, people who are alone, and in in a lot of instances, convince themselves they're alone, even when they are objectively cared for and loved by other people will assume they will assume the stress physiology, they'll assume the distress of a person who feels alone, possibly bitter and even angry, okay? Leading to all that nasty stuff that distress causes like obesity and cardiovascular disease. In other words, a person might quite literally die of heartache because they feel like they're alone even if they are cared for by others. So that is something to consider. So being in a community is important, being active in that community and having an understanding that that people really do care and contributing and being contributed to are key factors in that, okay? Next is respectful, we're getting into the new one now. They're respect-filled of themselves and of others. Now from the feedback on the previous lessons and conversations on the unstucking yourself, the community is clearly a differentiating factor. It usually is, it usually is. It's also a common observation with the TCAN Jumpstart Challengers as well as the private clients. And interestingly enough, research tends to back this up. Dr. Stuart Wolfe's 25 year longitudinal study on the resilience of Italians in Rosito, Pennsylvania mirrors these inferences. This is a group of people that, despite having what any physician would call absolutely horrible habits in terms of their lifestyle, they had half the amount of heart attacks than anybody else uh, within neighboring towns because of the sense of community they had. Interesting. They were able to take what is considered a distressing a state of distress and because of community, put themselves in a state of eustress, okay? Interesting. Now, what's the the driving force of this resilience building community factors? Well, respect, respect, okay? Respect of self, respect of others. It's a quality of thinking and doing things in a way that separates what a person does, or in most cases where they screw up, with how they are as people that self esteem disease, <laughs> the self esteem disease. Ugh. In essence, there's a concerted effort to take self esteem and shred it up, burn it, destroy it. Uh, esteem, especially self esteem, is the conditional acceptance of yourself and the conditional acceptance of others based off of something they say or do or an outcome there is. Okay. Uh, the global rating of a person or global rating of yourself in your entirety by virtue of a result or an apparent trait. Okay, now it's about assessing an outcome rather than assessing a person, especially if that person is you. (laughs) Uh, Although rating people in their entirety uh, um, means almost by default, you rate yourself in your entirety. The same goes for the opposite. Rating yourself in your entirety means that you're probably rating others in their entirety as well. Okay? In other words, you respect the person and respect yourself by making observations about what they do and what happens instead of making observations about them as people and about yourself as a person. For example, they are stupid, I am stupid. This is a self-esteem driven value judgment. Something happened and that something was permission was used as permission to rate the entirety of a person, the entirety of yourself as stupid. This ironically is stupidity of encyclopedic proportions. They may have done something dumb. I may have done something dumb. Okay, they did something dumb, I did something dumb. That's a respect driven assessment. If it respects the person by putting the assessment on the action and the outcome instead of the assessment on the person, that is respect. They are a mistake. I am a mistake. These are self-esteem driven value judgments. That was a mistake. I made a mistake. These are self-respect driven assessments, okay? You see the difference? It divorces It divorces the outcome from a person. It's assessing a decision and assessing an outcome instead of assessing a person. Hopefully that makes sense. I'll keep driving this home till the end of time, <laughs> okay? Self-respect is when you make a mistake or somebody else makes a mistake. Self-esteem is when you are a mistake. They are a mistake. People integrating a more respectful method, more respect-filled method of evaluating actions and outcomes are far, far, far more resistant to being, to becoming stressed. And if they do become stressed, they bounce back faster, also known as resilience, okay? A person takes something personally with self-esteem. They take something personally and then use that to label themselves or label somebody else in their entirety. And that level of personalizing will indubitably lead to catast- catastrophizing, disastrifying, awfulizing, allness, neverness, everythingness, nothingness, and, and greater levels of frustration. It handicaps a person from acting rationally. It makes it easier to do dumb stuff and harder to do smart stuff. When things become personal like that. It's like walking up to a board when somebody's doing a math problem and you see that the math problem is wrong. And instead of going, oh, there's a mistake in that math problem, you say, oh, you suck at math. That's the difference. That's esteem versus respect, okay? Freak out on that all day, okay? Tolerance, tolerance, particularly tolerance of frustrations, okay? Frustration tolerance engenders resilience on multiple levels, Again, Dr. Kashy could write an entire book on frustration tolerance. He might. You veterans of the SRO model know that S, stimulus, leads to R, response, and that response leads to an O, outcome. Many or even most of life's stimuli are frustrating stimuli. (laughs) A stimulus, S, is the event in a physical or mental environment that catches a person's attention. That's what a stimulus is. A frustrating stimulus is when a person appraises that stimulus as an event blocking them or might be blocking them from something they want. To that end, a frustrating stimulus is the single most motivational event a human can experience. It's the event prompting thoughts, feelings, and urges to respond, r, in a way to avoid, shrink, or resolve the frustration, okay? Being tolerant of frustration, having frustration tolerance, expands the gap between stimulus and response, a key factor in resilience. Why is that? Well, the more space a person has between stimulus and response, the more of a chance they have to inject logic and reason and act rationally to have more constructive outcomes. Okay. One of the most destructive things a person can do, especially during times of frustration or even crises is to act impulsively or acting what feels like in an automated way to something that feels better right now by avoiding instead of doing something rationally on purpose and with purpose by resolving, okay? Outbursts, gambling, most physical violence, habitual drinking, tantrums, panic, procrastination, binge eating, they're all impulsive behaviors. Typically impulsive responses to frustrating stimuli. Huh? Interesting, right? What's also interesting is that many times these same behaviors, the violence, the outbursts, the habitual drinking, the the eating okay they're also used to celebrate as well think about that pocket that okay (laughs) in either case impulsive responses to frustrating stimuli practically always make a frustration or a crisis even worse because the outcomes of those sorts of behaviors make for their own frustrating stimuli and being allergic to frustration more than erodes resilience it cripples it okay last Last, going over, being purpose filled. Being purpose filled. As in, they're the, they solution-centered rather than self-centered. Solution-centered rather than self-centered. Focused, and having con- focused on having constructive outcomes instead of so focused on themselves, using the problem as permission, using the problem as permission to throw pity parties, play martyr, or, or choose to label themselves as victims. Now, this is where things get a little touchy, but bake your noodle on this one. Go back to self-respect and global rating conditional attributions. Is it respectful? Even if a person was a target of something by public consensus as evil, does that mean they are a victim? Or were they targeted the target of something evil? Okay, see how this goes both ways? Indeed, the label is up to the person. It is up to them to... To consciously appropriate and identify with the label, although the media, their family, and their friends will all tend to encourage people to identify as a victim, as a person, the global rating because of a th- single thing that happened, having to live in the shadow of whatever happened to them forever, right? They become victims through and through, forever living in the shadow of what was done to them, crippling their ability to do anything about it. See how nasty that is, that global attribution? How is that respectful? Huh? Even if by all observable accounts they may have been a target, they were targeted by they were targeted they were targeted for something evil. But what makes a victim? The appropriation and acceptance of that cripplingly negative attribution. Victim. Does that seem to engender the value of self-respect, that global rating of a person in their entirety based off something that happened to them? Hmm? It's it's stomach (laughs) churning. Having a purpose, having a purpose helps a person to be problem centered rather than self centered. They're more task oriented and committed to resolution rather than frustrated and self centered victims. Because being a victim is frustrating as hell and it handicaps you from doing anything to resolve the issue even if this label of victim is socially acceptable for instance if the person was a target of something evil encouraging them to accept and appropriate and label themselves as victims handicaps them yeah this person may have been targeted by somebody doing something evil does that make them a victim gosh i highly suggest uh it, i highly suggest you avert <laughs> okay A purpose-filled person has good reasons according to them to look forward to the next day. More problems to overcome, more challenges to solve, more constructive outcomes. So that you've got an understanding of the seven habits of highly resilient people, it's time to look at it from a different perspective, perhaps. What are the seven habits of highly disturbable people, huh? Thank you for learning. Stay rational. Until next time. Want to continue having coffee with Dr. Cashy? Head over to iTunes to subscribe. Rate and leave a review. It is very much appreciated. Thank you, and see you next week. Dr. Kashi is out!